I don't know if you've noticed or not, but an awful lot of uh, classic stories uh, have or, or revolve around some sort of mysterious ancient prophecy. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but, but it really is actually a very common theme in classic literature and oftentimes in classic movies. And it's a theme that they've taken directly from the Bible. The great uh, true story, the story of all stories, the story that shapes and determines our lives. Maybe if you think about it for a minute, at the heart uh, of the Star Wars uh, series is a prophecy about one who would come and restore balance to the force. At the heart of the Harry Potter series, whether you're a fan or not, at the heart of those books and those movies are prophecies related to Harry and Lord Voldemort and how their destinies are entangled together. There's a movie out right now, a pretty popular movie, uh, called Dune. And at the heart of this particular movie, again, is a prophecy about a boy who uh, I suspect will become the focus of what I suspect are going to be uh, follow-ups to the movie that's out right now. Uh, but for God's people, prophecy has always played a major role in, um, in their understanding of God's unfolding plan. At the time of Jesus' first appearing, uh, the Jewish people were waiting eagerly, eagerly anticipating their prophesied Messiah, the promised coming one. And it is with that eager anticipation in mind that I ask you, as you're able, to stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God. And we're going to read together, just to kind of get us focused and moving, uh, John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46. John chapter 1, verses uh, 43 to 46. If you're with me here in the Center for New Life, I'll read the plain text. If you'll join me in reading the highlighted portions, and those who are worshiping with us virtually can read the text as it pops up there on the screen that we will walk through together. John chapter 1, then beginning at verse, verse 43, this is what the Bible says. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked? Come and see, said Philip. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, we're looking at this Advent season at God's promised coming one and at just a few of the Old Testament prophecies related to that coming. And clearly, Philip and Nathaniel had some of those prophecies in mind as they were thinking about Jesus, honoring Jesus, making decisions about whether or not they would follow Jesus. After all, when Philip comes to Nathaniel, he says to him, we found the one written about in the Bible, written about in the Old Testament, prophesied in the law and the prophets. Unfortunately, today at least, it seems to me, that this incredible prophetic evidence is often overlooked when people begin to contemplate or consider the claims of Jesus. But the truth is, it provides powerful confirmation that Jesus is really who he says he is. Now, the earliest Christians absolutely understood that, and you'll find that the apostles and the writers of the New Testament frequently pointed to Old Testament prophecy to support their message of the gospel. 
For example, the Apostle Peter, right after uh, the healing of this uh, lame man outside the gates of the temple, a crowd gathered round, and in speaking to them, Peter began to refer to Jesus and things surrounding the life of Jesus. And the Bible puts it this way. He referred to those things as how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, Acts 3.18. In Acts chapter 17, Luke says uh, uh, that it was the Apostle Paul's custom, it was his habit, it was, in Greek it was his ethos, to go into the synagogues every Sabbath and reason with the people there from the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament Scriptures, explaining and proving from those Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the one they were pointing to. Justin Martyr was an early convert to Christianity. He had been uh, thoroughly trained in several schools of pagan philosophy, but he gave his life to Jesus after an older gentleman convinced him that the testimony of the prophets was more reliable than the reasoning of philosophers. And after he saw with his own eyes the incredible holiness and self-sacrifice of the followers of Jesus. Around A.D. 150, Justin wrote his famous first apology of the Christian faith. He wrote it specifically for the Roman emperor Antoninus. And he wrote it to defend Christianity and to urge the emperor to stop the persecution of Christians. In this classic apologetic work, Justin explained what Christians believed, went to great pains to talk about their commitment to live holy, upright lives as model ethical citizens. But interestingly, he dedicated an enormous portion of his first apology to a discussion of the many ways Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Clearly, this was very compelling evidence for Justin. Finally, it's worth noting that Jesus himself pointed to Old Testament prophecy as reason to believe in him. After he was raised from the dead, he was having a conversation with two guys on the road to Emmaus. And the Bible says of Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, concerning himself on another occasion after he was risen from the dead he was meeting with his disciples and apostles the bible says he said to them this is what i told you while i was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms Now, last week I mentioned just some of the genealogical prophecies that began to narrow down the options for who might possibly claim to be this coming one. I told you that in all, there are 60 major messianic prophecies in the Old Testament with 270 prophetic ramifications, all 330 of which were uniquely fulfilled in the one person of Jesus of Nazareth. And those prophecies didn't just narrow down Jesus' family tree. They also narrowed down and identified things like the time and the place in history he would appear, the social climate in which he would function, and all manner of details about his life, his betrayal, his death, and other things. So this morning I want to focus our attention briefly on two more 
two more prophecies about his coming, the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem and the prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. In the message I'm calling The Village and the Virgin. So just to get started, Micah chapter 5, 2. In Micah 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, wrote this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That could also be translated from eternity. Now in the New Testament, both Luke and Matthew's gospel tell us that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem of Judea. And from a prophetic perspective, that's a really big deal. I mean, you think about it again. God, in, in prophesying and in indicating that his coming one would come from Bethlehem, in that one prophecy, he immediately and instantly eliminated every other possible location on the planet. And you need to understand that around the first century A.D., Bethlehem was a tiny, unwalled city about six miles roughly south of Jerusalem. And according to the renowned historian and archaeologist W.F. Albright, at that particular time in history, the total population of Bethlehem was something around 300 people. You talk about limiting your options. But Podunk, as Bethlehem was, it had a very noble history among the people of God. It was, for instance, the home of Ruth and Boaz. It was the birthplace of David's father, Jesse. And it was the place where the prophet Samuel anointed David to be king over Israel. And this history and this particular prophecy from Micah 5.2 were well known among the Jews of Jesus' day. In fact, when a group of wise men came to Jerusalem to inquire where this coming one would be born, they went to King Herod who gathered together the chief priests and the teachers of the law and all of them agreed together. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they went on to quote Micah 5.2. Ironically, this particular prophecy was so well known in Jesus' day that it actually became a stumbling block for certain Jewish people who knew that Jesus had come from, Galilee, uh, from, from Nazareth in Galilee, but who apparently didn't know he'd been born in Bethlehem. Since Jesus grew in prominence during his initial earthly ministry, people began to wonder out loud if this might be the promised coming one. And some of the Jewish leaders actually used the prophecy of Micah 5.2 against him. For example, in John chapter 7, there's an occasion where uh, the guards at the temple began to speak positively of Jesus. They began, they began to talk in, in the presence of the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests about how amazing Jesus speaks, and, and, and their reply to them was this. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. And then just a few verses later, they went on. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. 
and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They were referring to this prophecy from Micah 5.2, that the prophesied coming prophet would come out of Bethlehem, something which Jesus, in fact, did, although apparently these guys were unaware of it. Again, Matthew plainly states that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And Luke actually provides the historical backdrop explaining why he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. How God providentially used an edict by the first ever Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to move Jesus' earthly parents from their town in a tiny village called Nazareth all the way down to this tiny town of Bethlehem just around the time Jesus was ready to be born. So the prophecy was fulfilled. The promised one came out of Bethlehem, the city of David. You might be interested to know that the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And it was to this tiny, unwalled hamlet that God sent the bread of life to feed and ultimately to free the world. That brings us to Isaiah 7, verse 14. Another prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus was born. For the prophet Isaiah writes this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A couple hundred years later, writing about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew wrote this, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but... Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, when Joseph suspected what anyone in Joseph's position would have suspected, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now i got to tell you, as miraculous and as mathematically staggering, I went through that with you last week, as miraculous and, and as mathematically staggering as the fulfillment of all those other prophecies is, nothing more fully highlights the divine nature of the coming of Jesus than the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Because this prophecy makes it thoroughly clear. God and only God would be able to pull this one off. Prior to the coming of Jesus, God had often chosen to raise up great leaders, prophets, judges, deliverers of his people, through women who had previously been unable to conceive and bear children. God raised up an entire nation to Abraham through his wife, Sarah, who prior to the birth of Isaac had never been able to bear children. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, could not have children until God brought forth through her Jacob and Esau. Jacob's wife, Rachel, could not have children until God gave her Joseph, whom he eventually set in power in Egypt and used to deliver and save most of the known world. Samson's mother could not have children 
until, of course, God gave her Samson, who then uh, troubled the Philistines on behalf of the people of God. Hannah could not bear children until God gave her Samuel and then made of Samuel one of the greatest prophets and judges in the history of the nation of Israel. Elizabeth could not bear children until God brought forth through her John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. It seems God often delights in working against ridiculous odds to bring forth his purposes in the world. Perhaps it's just his way of reminding us over and over and over again that nothing is too difficult for him. And that whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, you are utterly dependent on God to see his purposes fulfilled in your life. So it really should come as no surprise then that when it came to sending the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, the one God promised long ago to come and set the world right again, to usher in his eternal kingdom vision, in all of its glory and in all of its goodness, it should come as no surprise to you that that birth should be the pièce de résistance, the granddaddy of all miraculous births, a whole nother level of wow. The coming one, born not merely to a barren woman, but to a full-fledged card-carrying virgin, a woman for whom conceiving was not just difficult, it was physiologically impossible. A scientific, anatomical, logical impossibility. So that this child, when he came forth, was not just really cool. He was, in fact, Emmanuel. He was, in reality, God with us. And perhaps more staggering than that, God like us. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fashioned bodily by God himself, brought forth into this world by God himself, in form and substance, fully human, and yet at the very same time, of one substance and being with the Father. True man and true God. God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten and yet never made. Taking human frame in the moment of the incarnation, yet having existed eternally without frame as God the Word. Which means this prophecy, fulfilled quite literally through the Virgin Mary, foretold not just the miraculous how, but also the miraculous who. Not just the miraculous mode of this coming, but the miraculous true identity of the one who came. The promised coming one, this Messiah, Savior of the world, turned out to be none other than God himself. Come to us in flesh and blood, just as the New Testament confirms. For example, the Apostle John in his first gospel writes in the very first verse of that gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later in verse 14, he adds, 
and the Word became flesh and lived among us. The author of Hebrews writes, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians uh, 2.9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And Jesus in John 14 looked at Philip and said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The coming of the promised one was a class A miracle, fulfilling in a single person 330 prophetic details from the Old Testament. It required an edict from the first Roman emperor to get a young expected couple from the backwater village of Nazareth to the tiny town of Bethlehem. It caused such a literal stir in the heavens that stargazing wise men from Babylon noticed and traveled hundreds of miles just to check it out. And it took a young virgin girl and put a child inside her womb by the direct action of the Holy Spirit. All this to bring Jesus into the world so that he could redeem and save it. And so one day soon he could come back again and establish once and for all and forever the kingdom of God in all its fullness in a new heaven and a new earth where all those who have died in Christ and gone before us will be reunited with their refashioned resurrected bodies. And all those who are alive at his return will find their bodies transformed in an instant. And all of them will live together with the Lord in the world as it was meant to be. This is the true promise of Christmas and of the promised coming one. Next week, Pastor Matt will talk to you a little bit about the very first prophecy of this coming one and exactly what he came to do. But for now, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the power and the clarity, and Lord, the beauty of your word, and Lord, and the beauty of your plan, the glory of your working that is revealed to us in that word. Lord, the intricacy of it all, the way you providentially work through leaders without their knowing it, the, you moved pagans from the east, you set up and established everything, hundreds of years of prophecy fulfilled in one single person. And capping it all for the glorious miracle of the incarnation in a virgin girl. Lord, thank you for your word. Continue to use it to stir and draw us closer and closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.